Well, it's graduation season, and I'm sure we've all heard various graduation speeches that all seem to circle around the same message. Just be true to yourself. We're all familiar with this sentiment, one that's seemingly ingrained in every Disney movie we watch, every pop song we listen to, and every best-selling book that we read. But does this message align with what Christ calls us to when he bids us to come and die that we might live for him? My guest today is Kevin DeYoung, and he argues that the last thing that God wants us to do is be true to ourselves, at least when it comes to our natural selves. We discuss how common phrases like you do you and follow your heart threaten to distort our calling as Christians and feed into several other lies that our culture is constantly proclaiming. Kevin DeYoung is the senior pastor of Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina, and associate professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also the author of Do Not Be True to Yourself, Countercultural Advice for the Rest of Your Life from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Great to be with you. So when it comes to the issue of personal identity, how would you summarize the world's message about that today? Oh, there are so many unhelpful messages that the world gives us. And one of the most prevalent, and hence the title of this book, is to be true to yourself. In fact, when I was just looking on Amazon to see, you know, is the book up there? Mm. I found a book by that very title, <laughs> Dueling, Don't Be True. Yes, Do Be True to Yourself. Yeah. So it's it's very common, almost become a cliche in graduation speeches or, you know, fortune cookie sort of advice. I think the world's sense is if you could just get deep inside yourself and get in touch with the real you, the bad parts of you, that's not the real you. There's a, a real you. And in fact, what the world wants to do is shape you into its mold, mm-hmm. which is a biblical idea. The world does that, but they think the world wants you to have all these rules. And if you could just find the real person deep inside of you, the authentic self. So, you know, it's Carl Truman's you know, expressive individualism that is writ large across our culture that people don't even realize that they've imbibed that through a thousand different songs and TV shows and movies. Mm. Yeah, I want to get to that issue of authenticity, uh, which has got such purchase in our culture today in just a minute. Before we go there, though, if if this is characteristic of the culture today, our worldview today when it comes to identity, what would have what would is it like before today? So what were the dispositions towards identity that maybe maybe marked a previous era? Well, certainly, it's not only a different era, but different places. Now, there is more of a a global sort of culture today than ever before. But even most surveys or sociologists will tell you that America is still off the charts in its sense of individualism. Mm. So there would be uh, Eastern cultures that I think even today, though affected by the West, would find that a strange piece of advice that more important than being true to yourself is being true to your community Mm -hmm. or being true to your ethnic identity or being true to your class or to your clan. So those ideas are still out there. 
And it's, I mean, I think you could certainly argue that in, in America, at least, there's always been, I mean, we have a magnet on our fridge, one of the don't tread on me, you know, <laughs> with the snakes. So there's always that, you know, we're liberty people. But that's not to be confused with this newer kind of mm. self-expression. I mean, it's one thing to say, I sh- you know, shake off the shackles of tyranny. It's another to say that I find my truest self and purpose and meaning in expression and authenticity. Whereas, to your question, I think in previous generations, it's not that they got everything right, but there would have been more of a sense of you have some obligation Mm -hmm. to your family, you have an obligation to your community, you have an obligation to expectations of people around you. I've watched my share of Jane Austen movies. <laughs> and if you read the <laughs> Big books... Big confession. Or, yes, I know. Or any of those sort of period pieces. You know that part of the push and pull is always there's social societal expectations about things you, you should and shouldn't do and you know rubbing against who you want to be or how you want to express yourself. So that was certainly more dominant in a previous era. And one of the things we'll probably talk about is there actually are those sort of expression or uh, expectations Mm. in our day, they just push in a different sort of direction. Right. So for many, they would view that phrase, be true to yourself, as something of a noble expression, a a noble prizing of authenticity, of honesty even, with regard to who they are. And they would see that in contrast to maybe a fakery that so often characterizes our lives. So isn't authenticity a good thing? Like, why isn't that good advice for someone trying to navigate this world? It can be a good thing. You're absolutely right. People here, especially younger generations, hear authenticity depends on what's the opposite of Mm. authenticity. So they hear hypocrisy or fakery a word, but Mm. we'll just say it's a word. (laughs) It is now. (laughs) It is now. Uh, Phoniness. Yeah, so that's, that's the opposite. You're pretending to be what you're not. But hypocrisy, hypocrisy is putting forth the face of virtue when it's not your real character. People confuse that with doing the right thing when you don't feel like it. Mm. That's not hypocrisy. That's called maturity, being an adult. So to be in touch with your deepest desires requires at times sublimating those desires, putting to death those desires. So, yeah, authenticity can be good or bad. Mm. If the opposite is I lie and I deceive myself and others, good. But that's often not what it means because to get in touch with who we are and what we feel and what we think requires as Christians not automatic approbation, but at times mortification and finding the authentic self. Oh, wow, that's what I'm really like, Mm. but I shouldn't be that way. And in fact... Christ came to help me put that to death and be a different sort of person. Mm. So Christians are definitely supportive of identifying and understanding our authentic selves, but it doesn't mean that we we celebrate that as the best version of ourselves. Yeah, uh, one of the things, uh, I'm, in the P- I'm a pastor in the PCA and uh, worked with some others on a years ago, a few years ago, the Sexuality Study Committee. One of the lines we had in there, because identity is a big issue, and one of the lines that we had that I really like was we name our sins, but we're not named by them. Mm. Meaning 
yes, we are honest before God and appropriately with others. Authenticity doesn't mean you have to announce all of your sins to everyone. But before God and appropriately before others, we name those sins. We aren't trying to hide that's who we are and what we do. Yet we're not named by them, meaning though our life is always as we're always sinners in need of a savior, it's not that we affix to our identity as Christians certain sin struggles. We are sinners, yes, but we are born again. We have union with Christ. We are made in his image. So to find our authentic self is not to be identified with simply getting in touch with Mm. our expressive individualism and our own desires. Mm. Over the last few years, we've all seen countless stories of deconversion, of deconstruction around us. And it seems like one of the common elements in that is this feeling of like a personal testimony. It almost feels like a conversion testimony like we're used to in the church, but a testimony and often elements of that are people testifying to the newfound freedom or relief or joy even that they've experienced because they have finally acknowledged what they always knew to be true, or they've finally thrown off the the shackles of expectations or conformity that they had on them in the Christian community. And they testified to how this has helped them, help their mental health, help their emotional health, help their relationships even sometimes. So what do you make of that from a pastoral perspective as you're talking to Christians who kind of see that happening and maybe also feel some of those same things? How do we make sense of those feelings that come from this embrace of authenticity. Wasn't there uh, a tweet recently responding to Tim Keller? Tim Keller was saying the Mm. most important thing you can do is read your Bible every year. Mm. And someone said that's the language of spiritual abuse. Yeah. So the elasticity of our labels can be stunning. Mm. So uh, as a pastor, I think of that and it's multi-layered. People are complex. People feel things, do things for complex reasons. So if that was, and yes, we've all heard those stories. That was someone in my church. I'd want to try to unpack. So what happened? Because one, it could be possible. There were really harmful, hurtful things done Hmm. to someone. And maybe there's genuine confusion. They mistook that for Christianity, and that's not authentic Christianity. Maybe there are people in their lives that sinned against them and need to repent. So you have that sort of layer, but that's not the only layer. It's also possible that we misread our own experiences. This is one of uh, whatever it was, Paul Tripp or Ted Tripp or both of them, but or David Paulison. We don't just experience life. We're always interpreting our experiences. Mm. We're always putting a grid on how we're living and what, what this means, a, a grid of meaning upon this. So I think often with the deconstruction stories, it's people looking back in a way they would have never described what was happening to them at mm, the time. Yeah. In fact, people that they were quite close to or churches that they thought were really life-giving, mm. times in their life where they had great joy, mm. now look back through this lens to understand, ah, now I, th- I want to see this yeah. in a different category. And so you have to say, well, why is that? Is that a better paradigm for understanding life? Is it possible that 
if you think you misinterpreted your experiences then, is it possible that you're misinterpreting your experience now? Hmm. It is, to your point, it is a very evangelical way of talking. Yeah, We're all trained in that evangelical mode of personal testimony. So it's not a surprise that people deconstructing have their same kind mm-hmm. of testimony. And it actually does point to one of the, perhaps the weaknesses of many, much of the, some of the evangelical tradition is that we can put too much emphasis upon those stories. Tell me your story. Yeah. I, you ask me how I know he lives because he lives within my heart. Well, that's good. We want mm-hmm. him to live within your heart, but better is that the tomb is empty. It's mm-hmm. a better reason. So if we've been trained that it's my personal testimony that indicates what God is like and my relationship with him, then it's not a surprise that on the other end that personal testimony becomes operative, whether it's really grounded in fundamental realities or not. Mm. Something you mentioned a little while ago was just the way that our culture can have certain expectations that it does impose upon us, even though it often decries expectations, decries conformity. Um, There's this paradoxical push towards conformity when it comes to accepting and even celebrating certain things in our culture today. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit. What's going on there where we say we hate conformity, and yet there is this growing sense of conformity? Yeah, and there are famous cartoon with everyone raising their fist shouting, resist conformity or something (laughs) as they're all saying it Sounds like a good far side cartoon. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I think this is part of human nature or at least fallen human nature that has existed at all times and will continue to exist. We, and and, and there is an American kind of spin to it that we want on the one hand to stand out, but we want to stand out relative to certain people. So that may be relative to our parents or to our church or to owning the libs or to Mm. conservatives. So this can happen to any of us that we are subtly defining ourselves solely in opposition to someone else. So that's the kind of resist conformity. But as you said, it's so often goes hand in hand with an absolute lockstep conformity. I you know I use in the book the illustration from a you know famous author in her graduation speech about w- the greatest source of evil that bedevils us is marching to the to our, the somebody else's drumbeat mm-hmm. and we need to listen to the timpani hammering in our own hearts and it's it's marching in lockstep with somebody else's drumbeat that is the cause of homophobia and sexism and all these things I think what an absolutely conformist list of mm. phobias yeah. and evils that speaking to this you know, university audience, everyone would have nodded there. Of course, we know those things yeah. are wrong. Those things are evil. So no one was in danger of marching actually to their own timpani. Mm. They were very much in lockstep while at the, I mean, this is the best of both worlds. All of your peers around you can affirm what you're doing. And at the same time, you have a feeling of heroism for Mm. being brave and courageous. So if you can do both, and we're all drawn to doing both those things, I don't have any social consequences with my immediate class or school or peer group. And yet I can resist conformity and be heroic and courageous 
because a lot of people who I never actually meet and never interact with, I'm sticking it to them. That's that's going to have a real appeal. Mm, yeah. What's the connection between our identities and our desires? That's something that you kind of draw out in the book that I thought was really fascinating. They're not identical, but they are they're we often are what we desire. And one of the things that Christianity tries to do, and to be fair, it's not just Christian, but I would say even the the Western philosophical tradition has tried to say human mastery is to have control over your desires. So, so much of what's in our cultural air, and it's not presented so much as a syllogism, it's just out there, is do what you feel. You are what you feel. Mm. You, you have desires, and in fact, if somebody tries to stop you from acting upon those desires, they're not just wrong, they're hateful. They're denying your whole personhood. That really is a... a a new concept. I wouldn't say it's new because nothing is new under the sun. But throughout Western history, philosophy and theology has said we have we have higher desires and lower desires, or we have higher faculties and lower faculties, and we have affections, which, in the language of philosophy or theology, are motions of the will. Affections have to do with our inclinations, have to do with voluntary choice where passions were something that sweep over you. They render you passive. Mm -hmm. They come upon you. And so from Aristotle all the way down, it was said your reasoning faculties have to try to have mastery over those passions, that the person who just allows himself to be swept over by sensual appetites is not going to be a virtuous person, Mm -hmm. is not going to be in mastery of himself, and Christianity builds upon this basic ethic and, of course, understands it through a Christological lens and, and tweaks it where necessary. But that has gotten turned on its head so that so many people think to be truly human and to be truly virtuous, I only and I must act according to my yeah. desires. It almost seems like there is, yeah, the, the distinction between desires and our identity has mm-hmm. been erased. Right. It's not even just that these desires are good or to be celebrated, but it, they actually are who I am. Yeah, and if anyone, so I, I have a lot of kids and I think as a parent, if you have kids, you should know this by common sense. Your kids have lots of desires, and if you would allow them, they would be consumed by their desires. Mm. They would eat whatever they want. They would go to bed whenever they want. They'd wake up whenever they want. They would play in the road if they want. They have lots of desires. And as parents, you realize, I know more than they know, and I need to prevent them from acting upon mm. all their desires. So if there's a an epistemological gap between parents and children, how much more is there an epistemological and an ontological gap between human beings and God? Shouldn't we imagine God might know more than I know. Mm. He might even know what's better for me than I know for myself. So if God tells me that these desires are to be mortified, are to be repented of, uh, or are disordered, then God knows what virtue is and what joy is and means to help me, not to harm me. But I think our world has come at us now to the point 
where if somebody tells you can't act on those desires or someone gives you the sort of counsel that makes you feel bad about yourself or feel like you failed, then you're, that's not just unhelpful, but that may be positively traumatizing or abusive. And mm. it's not to discount abuse is a real category and it's it can be physical and it can be emotional, it can be spiritual. But the word has become so overwrought that any almost any time I feel as if you're putting upon me and you're causing me to feel self-pain, then you have done something irretrievably wrong to mm. me. Well, I'm, I'm struck by the way that Christians can respond to that kind of language is, is with disdain and kind of a can't believe they're equating me criticizing this portion of them with saying that they should be canceled or they should, right. shouldn't exist. But it does get to me that as you talked about how uh, this predominant worldview functions and how we think about identity, that it, there is a certain logic to it if you start with the, these presuppositions that they have about who we are. So it's not necessarily all pure pretense on behalf of the non-Christian. Right. And with most things, most worldly deceptions, lies, they're half-truths. Mm. Our desires do matter. So one of the things in the book, little phrases, probably not original to me, it, the philosophical question, does is equal ought? Meaning, does the fact of your desire or what you feel is the givenness about you, does that mean who you ought to be or you ought to act upon that is? And it depends. There's a truth to that. The truth is that we we must and we will operate out of a foundational sense of our identity. So I often you know use the little twist on the the Lady Gaga song "Born This Way," mm. but you can be born again another way. So the world is the world does understand. Mm. I have a certain fundamental identity, and I have to operate, and I will operate out of that identity. And I should be try. I should try to live consistently with that identity. I should try to. Yeah, that's right. I should try to live consistently with that identity. The world gets that right. What it gets so fundamentally wrong is it doesn't have a doctrine of the fall mm. that you might be in touch with your identity, and it's wrong, and it needs to be crucified, and even as Christians. We're simul justus et peccator. We're at the same time sinners and justified. So even as Christians, we have desires that are indwelling sin that are aspects of, of who we are, even though we want to live according to our identity in Christ as new creations in Christ. So yes, it, this isn't just something that we can safely say exists outside the church, and it's just it's messed up people out there who have this. Uh, we have a lot of confusion in our own heads and hearts about how to understand who we are and what that means for Christian life. Yeah. A minute ago, you mentioned that so often this secular message of identity is not, it's not clearly articulated like we're doing right yeah. now. It's not taught uh, in a very direct didactic way. It's infused into our culture in so many different ways that we kind of just imbibe it uh, unknowingly often. And you give the example of the, the popular Disney movie, Frozen. Yeah, and, and the probably the most popular song. All the parents are gonna s hate me because they're gonna start humming it in their heads. Uh -huh. But let it go. 
which is this kind of ode to this, what we're talking about here. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit. What, what is it about that song that kind of speaks to this idea? Uh, so this will be the segment of the podcast where we, we pile on Disney a bit, <laughs> which uh, they have some good things, but they have a, th- this is a recurring theme in yeah. lots of story in lots of children's and uh, literature or movies more in particular. Yeah. Let it go there. It's not a surprise that was quickly s- grabbed onto as an anthem in LGBTQ hmm. community. I mean, they, they saw that. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but they certainly saw that as a coming out song. Yeah. Let it go, let it go. And the message of that song, it's so catchy, but it no rules, no right, no wrong for me. It's complete unfettered individualism. Everything about the world around me is frozen and it's forcing me mm. to be this frozen princess. Yeah, I mean, to, just for people's memory, I think this comes at a pivotal point in the yeah. movie where the main character, Elsa, she's lived all of her life hiding these magical powers right. that she has because they're they're viewed as dangerous. They're viewed as unorthodox or something. And so she spent her whole life hiding those things. And then she finally comes to this realization that she doesn't need to hide anymore. She needs to be true to herself. Yeah, yeah. What I, I don't care what people think. I've been hiding my real self too long, and if I just let it let it go, that's the mantra for the rest. It's trying to come to grips with hmm. who you are, really, if you would just be okay with yourself. And again, there's, you know, the smidgen of truth is we all know people in our lives who have misplaced shame. Maybe all of us, we could all talk about something we don't like about the way we look hmm. or a habit or some embarrassing moment. So the world understands there's misplaced shame. You feel ashamed for things you don't have. Mm. But the Bible also says there's rightly placed shame. And Paul quite often uses shame as a moral motivating force in both directions. You should not be ashamed to be identified with these Christians that people hate. You should not be ashamed to identify with Christ because he he will not be ashamed to be called your brother. So there's lots of don't let the world shame you there. But then there's the language of of things ab- about which you should be ashamed or which we wouldn't even dare to speak in secret. We wouldn't even whisper about. They're so shameful. They ought to be hidden. And I think we just don't have we think we don't have a category for that. I've used a little phrase before that stigma usually speaks longer longer and louder than dogma. That's mm. to your point about it doesn't come to us as a question and answer catechesis from the culture, that kind of dogma. But certain things are, are stigmatized and certain things are made to look good and other things made to look bad. So paradoxically, even as the world tells us to let it go, let it go, it is also telling us, but you ought to behave in this certain way, and you sh- you must wear the rainbow jersey for this special hockey night, or hell will fall upon you. Mm. So, so I think one natural f- question to this, and maybe especially keen for parents who have young kids, you know, you have many children, yeah. we talked about that before, is what are we supposed to do? Like, how do we resist this? How do we teach our children? How do we 
encourage other brothers and sisters in Christ and encourage our churches to resist this, especially when it is so pervasive culturally and it's so subtle. Uh, is there anything we can reasonably do to fight against this this message when it comes to who we are? It's difficult. One of my favorite phrases, got it from David Wells, is that worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. So that's what the world does. It makes sin look normal. It does that through a thousand images and videos and movies of things that if they can get you to laugh about it, if they can get you to sympathize with it, you don't even realize your heart is being shaped to see sin as normal. Hmm. So has the church been asleep on that front? Because I I, I think of how many people, you know, not again, not to pick on Disney, but we kind of, we consume all of this media. We consume all these ideas. And most of the time, I don't think we're even aware of the message that, that we're actually imbibing through them. And I think it, yeah. And it comes reinforced through social relationships I think, by God's grace, kids can can veg out through some Disney movies and sing a lot of songs and watch Moana and and not take away that I should disobey my parents and go s- sail out in the ocean because they don't know better. <laughs> so by God's grace, that it's not a one-to-one correlation. But that does mean that we need to, one, you need to have conversations about that. You need to be, whether it's a homeschool, Christian school, or if you know, you're at a public school, you, you got to do a lot of extra work to help your kids think about these things when they get old enough to try to die. Okay, what is that message? And it means, okay, here's what I want to tell parents, not to be despondent. If you would spend time with your kids, and I'm a big proponent, I hope this is right, of, of quantity, even if there's the quality. <laughs> we want quality too, but you, you can't make up for quantity. You can't do a one Grand Canyon trip a year for a weekend and be a jerky parent the rest of the year or never around. Mm. Just to, your kids pick up all sorts of things from you. You are providing in your home, they don't even know it, what normal sort of is. This is why when p- kids raised in good homes have no idea the benefit they have. And kids who are raised in really bad homes have a lot, by God's grace they can, but a lot to overcome because we're setting the, you know, I grew up in a good home. So I, I know that affects me to basically think the world's probably pretty safe. People probably tell the truth. Moms and dads love each other and they don't always get, and they love their kids and the sort of my imagination of moral catastrophe is probably smaller than mm. some people. I think, no, it, most people probably getting it well. And, and that means I need to be aware of how things can go horribly wrong. But it also means, parents, you have an opportunity with your kids to reinforce a whole set of normal things about your family, how you interact, you read the Bible together, how you love one another, how you repent before one another. And we don't, you know, you go to our home, I think it would seem very normal. Our kids don't hate us. I mean, they have phones. They're on their phones. They're on their phones too much. The parents are, we're on our phones too much. <laughs> but you can watch something and say, what what happened right there? What, what, do, you, what do you think about that? Mm. And 
kids pick up on that. And if they, at least this parents, if your kids can grow up with the sense mom and dad love each other, they love me and they love Jesus and they love the church. If you get those things, it's not that they can't fall away. Sadly, we see that happen. But you are putting some pretty serious roadblocks mm. in a good way that they have to say, no, wait a minute, okay, my mom and dad didn't live like this. Mm. And that message is would mean that my mom and dad are terrible people. I, that doesn't quite mm. make sense. I mean, sadly, a lot of times it seems like with these stories of deconversion, with these stories of falling away, they do often have a component of uh, failure on the part of... Yeah. Solid, Christian influences Someone. and leaders in their lives that often is part of the story. But maybe as a, a final question, in the book that you've written, you talk a lot about the importance of choices, the importance of small choices that we make over the course of our whole life and, and just how we, we so often focus on the big ones and we neglect these small ones. And, and one of the maybe seemingly small decisions that you highlight, especially as you talk to graduating seniors, mm. pe- kids who are going off to college for the first time, you mentioned this little choice that they have to make that maybe would surprise us as something that you would highlight in a book like this. I want to tell us what that choice is and why that's so important. So that, that chapter grew out of a, a baccalaureate message I gave at our high school here where I laid out just that. I said, I want to tell you about the most important choice you are going to make in just a few months from now, and speaking to a context where almost everybody is graduating from high school, going to college, and I laid out all the sort of important choices they have in life, and you've you've already made a lot of choices. You made a choice of where you're going to school. You may know what you want to study, who you're going to room with, what sort of activities you want to do, but the most important thing, that first Sunday, will you go to church? I wanted to put it as concrete and as practically as possible. Now, people might miss that and come, but no, you have a much better chance if you do it the very beginning, because what happens, yep, I'm a Christian, grew up in a church, Christian home, wonderful, I'm off at school, and even the, the young person, it doesn't mean to reject that, they're not meaning to cast that aside, but if they don't have in their mind, this is what I'm going to do, not just I'll get involved with campus outreach or RUF or crew or InterVarsity, do those good campus groups, but I'm going to be in a local church that first Sunday. I'm going to set the alarm, get up, find a ride, drive there, figure it out. I think is it's nothing less than potentially life-defining. Mm. Do you go to church. You can go to church your whole life and be a, barely a Christian or not a Christian. You cannot be a good growing Christian and never go to church. Mm. Mm. It also strikes me that there's beyond just the direct benefits of the church for our lives as Christians, what you were just saying, that decision also seems representative of a whole way That's of right. thinking about yes. our faith and our lives that we would want to encourage in Christians. Yeah, that uh, there are th- to follow Jesus means I do things that are hard. Even, the, even That's a minimally hard thing. Mm. I do things that are inconvenient. And that means now we're going to have to really reinforce to folks, and when you go, I want you to actually get up and go to a church mm. building, to a location. 
not brushing your teeth with, you know, a live stream on your phone. You're right. And I love the way you just phrase that because we can just reinforce habits or that, yes, I'm still a Christian. Yes, Jesus is still important to me. But over time, it becomes as it fits in hmm. my life, as it fits in my identity, as if it continues to fit and it helps me, I'm happy to do it. I don't need to be at the anti-Jesus club. But that's a far cry from Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me. And you must lay down your life unless a seed falls into the ground, into the earth. It doesn't bear fruit. We need to help people realize those small choices. God is not trying to rob you of joy. He's trying to set you on the life of maximum joy, maximum happiness, uh, maximum support and satisfaction. So you're doing this because it's right. You're also doing this because it's what God knows is best. Hmm. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for helping us to think through this common cultural phrase, this this underlying message that we get bombarded at us all the time and, and hopefully think a little bit more biblically about what they're saying. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. That was Kevin DeYoung on embracing God's will for our lives rather than our own. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Do Not Be True to Yourself, Countercultural Advice for the Rest of Your Life. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.